Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Global crises have long-run consequences. History shows how diseases and even financial turmoil have affected birth rates. We take a look at the effects COVID-19 has already had and find real differences between the rich and the poor world. And there are merits to working from home. But what about working from hotel? Rooms stand empty and business types are grounded and cooped up. So hoteliers are starting to offer their rooms and suites, often with printers and stationery thrown in. But first... You think it's agony not to know the outcome of America's presidential election? Imagine if it stretched on for five more weeks, as it did back in 2000. NBC News is now taking Florida out of Vice President Gore's column and putting it back in the too-close-to-call column. Florida was initially called for George W. Bush with a whisper-thin margin, fewer than 2,000 votes. And the particulars of the automatic recount sparked a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. I think America ought to be comforted to know that the highest court of our land is going to make sure that the outcome of this election is a fair outcome. In the end, the court voted to stop the recount, handing the state's electoral votes and the presidency to Mr. Bush. I say to President-elect Bush that what remains of partisan rancor must now be put aside, and may God bless his stewardship of this country. This time around, President Donald Trump demanded recounts before final tallies were even reached. And the counting continues. The result now hinges on final numbers in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. As the electoral arithmetic looks better and better for Joe Biden, the Trump campaign grows louder and louder about contesting it. It's no surprise that the country finds itself again at the precipice of an election that could be decided in the courts. 20 years on, politics is more divided and the president more litigious. Jason, the Trump campaign seems to be pulling out all the stops. Stephen Maisie is our Supreme Court correspondent. In the wee hours on Wednesday morning, the president pledged that he'd be going to the Supreme Court to address what he called the fraud on the American public. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. Which is his rather odd spin on states counting all the mail-in votes that have piled up. And he said again in a strange, uh, maybe bleary-eyed construction, it was the middle of the night. We want all voting to stop. He clearly meant all the counting since all the voting did stop when the polls closed on Tuesday 
and mail-in ballots would have had to be mailed by election day. Uh, Now, to be clear, no one, not even the president, can simply waltz into the Supreme Court and say, come on, there are voting shenanigans happening, please fix them. In all but one of the cases that the Trump administration and Trump campaign are bringing, the president is filing challenges in state court or federal district court and not going directly to the Supreme Court. And what kind of challenges are we talking about here? Well, Trump is doing a range of things in at least half a dozen states. Mostly he's trying to seal off and protect leads he has in states like Georgia and Pennsylvania, where most of the mail-in votes are now going to Biden and shrinking his lead. On Wednesday morning, President Trump sued to stop or pause the count in in Michigan, uh, which had been declared for Biden by most news outlets, including the AP and the New York Times. Uh, The Trump campaign claimed that its canvassing observers were being shut out of watching ballots being opened and recorded, and they wanted to stop the counting while that could be fixed. Trump and his allies also have a few lawsuits brewing in Pennsylvania, There are cases that are challenging a process called ballot curing, which is when voters who get something wrong on their ballot, like missing a privacy envelope, or maybe their signature doesn't match the one that's on file, they get to try again and fix the ballot so that it can be counted. The Trump campaign is also asking for a recount in Wisconsin. Biden has taken Wisconsin by about 20,000 votes which, according to Wisconsin state law, is narrow enough that Trump can challenge it. Anything under a 1% gap, the Trump campaign can call for a recount. They simply have to pay for it if it's over a quarter percent. And the 20,000 translates into about 0.6%. And amid all that, you indicated there was one case that would, in fact, go to the Supreme Court. Yes, there is one case that has already actually reached the Supreme Court, It's out of Pennsylvania, and it has to do with the deadline by which mail-in ballots may arrive. It's very much a live question. The story goes back to September when the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court decided that in light of the pandemic, in light of the difficulties of the Postal Service, that it would make sense in order to protect the state constitution's right to vote to extend the deadline to receive those ballots by three days, so to Friday, November 6th. Republicans in Pennsylvania were outraged by this. They approached the Supreme Court not once but twice. Each time they were rebuffed and the rule stayed in place. But the second time that the court ruled, which was just last week, Justice Alito, joined by two of his colleagues, wrote in a concurring opinion that This is an issue that the court should take up and should address, and those ballots coming in late should be segregated from the rest of them, and uh, the Republicans in Pennsylvania should come back and request a rehearing, a full hearing, after the election, and hinting that perhaps those late-arriving ballots could be tossed out after the fact. So this would be a major development, and if the race ends up coming down to Pennsylvania... And if there are enough of these late-arriving ballots that would have broken for Biden, it's possible that this is a case that could tip the election to Donald Trump. But even in the run-up to the election, there were legal challenges being filed, tales of legions of lawyers from both campaigns fanning out across the country. 
Yes, there were already uh, more than 300 pre-election cases fought by both parties, by, by Republicans and Democrats. In general, it was Democrats who looked at the situation in America with COVID and tried to make voting easier by expanding drop-off voting, nixing requirements on mail-in ballots, like having to have a witness. And Republicans were suing to resist those changes and tried to keep the previous rules in place. They said, you know, states get to decide this and federal judges shouldn't. Now, a number of these cases reached the federal Supreme Court. And in general, the court has been bitterly divided along lines that disturbingly seem to track partisanship. But Chief Justice Roberts has been in the middle. His general position is that federal courts should not meddle with state election laws. State legislatures, according to the Constitution, have the primary role in deciding the time, place, and manner of how elections are run. And federal judges shouldn't rewrite those rules. But when an arm of the state itself alters a rule, as in Pennsylvania or in North Carolina, where either a state court or a state board of elections extends the ballot receipt deadline by a few extra days, according to Chief Justice Roberts, the Supreme Court should not touch that. And what would happen if Joe Biden does get to 270, the majority of electoral votes, and claims victory, as he says he will, but these cases are still going on in the background? Do you think any of it represents a real uh, risk of, of undoing the results? Jason, I think this barrage of lawsuits that we're seeing now over the last 36 hours is actually intended to avert Biden reaching 270 electoral votes. I think President Trump was encouraged by his early wins in Florida and a few other states and really liked to see the leads he was enjoying in the upper Midwest. And since the winds have turned, he's been grabbing onto the mast and desperately trying to keep his ship moving in the right direction. But none of these lawsuits, with the possible exception of the Pennsylvania ballot deadline suit, which is really a Hail Mary, really gives him anything like the chance that George Bush had in 2000 uh, to win the election over Al Gore. This appears to be his flailing last gasp effort to write things, and he's going down fighting. Stephen, thanks very much for your time. Always good to be with you, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. The pandemic has people staying at home much more, often with more time on their hands for making sourdough, watching Netflix, and getting close with their partners. Or children. For some, the stresses of lockdowns and furloughs have made them question or even outright delay their plans to have babies. Others have had less of a choice. At a time of such uncertainty about health and about the economy, women around the world generally are reluctant to bring a baby into the world. Avantika Chilkoti is an international correspondent at The Economist. 
in the rich world, that's leading to a baby bust. But in the poor world, you're actually seeing a bit of a baby boom at the moment. And why is that picture so different? So in the rich world where women have often got good access to contraception, people stock up on the pill, stock up on condoms for quite a few months at a time, you can essentially plan a family. And so there was a survey recently by the Goodmarker Institute, which is a pro-choice group, and they found that basically a third of women of childbearing age who earned less than a certain amount of money were looking to get pregnant later or have fewer children because of the pandemic. People seem very sure that now is not a good time to have a kid. But in the poor world, you're seeing that women are having children that they might not have planned. If you think about what COVID has done to where people are physically, it's incredibly interesting. So in South Asia, we had quite an abrupt lockdown in India. And that meant that millions of urban workers went back to their home villages. And they were reunited with wives, lovers, who they normally see just maybe once a year during a public holiday. And I was speaking to some experts at the UN, and they were saying just that could be enough to throw off our population estimates as couples are reunited. And you say the availability of of contraception is another big factor here. Yeah, there have been some studies of public health centers in India, and they found a really sharp drop in women getting access to the pill, getting access to long-term contraception. I spoke to one young man in Kampala in Uganda, and he was saying that when you had the shutdown in Uganda, people were coupling up. Single people were looking for company. And he now has three female friends who are facing unplanned pregnancies just because they didn't have access to contraception. And meanwhile, what does the situation on the ground look like in, in the rich world? Well, so when you first went into the lockdown earlier this year, basically just having a baby at this time wasn't very pleasant. I mean, in New York, for example, people were worried that partners wouldn't be allowed into delivery rooms. Women were worried about being alone in those moments. Even people who were having trouble getting pregnant, it wasn't clear whether fertility treatments should go ahead, and a lot of people put them off. So the practicalities around getting pregnant were a lot more complicated this year. Of course, there's a nine-month delay between someone conceiving a baby and the child being born, so it's pretty tough to get data on what exactly is happening right now. But lots of academics, lots of think tanks have tried to put together some estimates. Some people do this using survey data. Others do things like looking at what we're searching for online and pairing that up with what it might mean for birth rates. One study came to the conclusion that you would have a 15% drop in America's monthly birth rate between November and February, which is quite a staggering amount. And how likely do you think that the the impacts that are coming, both in terms of boom and bust, will, will last? That's a really interesting question. So normally what we're doing is we're comparing COVID-19 and its effect on birth rates with both the global financial crisis And also with previous disasters, things like Hurricane Katrina or the SARS epidemic. And people are questioning whether this could be different. You know, in the past, what you've seen is when you had a big disaster that caused death rates to spike, you immediately saw a fall in birth rates, but they picked up again within a year or a few years. And we already have some signs, actually, that people want to have children again. So in New York, we spoke to some fertility clinics where they said they were seeing a tiny number of patients earlier this year, but now they're basically back to where they were a year ago in terms of the number of patients coming through their doors. 
The question now is whether the economic uncertainty will stay. If you keep having people worried about their jobs, worried about their incomes, that's still going to put people off giving birth, even if access to contraception comes back in the poor world. So the historic and and the the sort of current view is that perhaps this is just a a blip on overall fertility and not not the shaping of a generation? Well, exactly. I think the one place where this could have a long-term impact is with women who are now currently around the age of 35. So essentially, the impact isn't long-term if women who don't have a baby this year just delay it and decide to have a child next year. Or women in the poor world who have an unplanned pregnancy this year who decide to have fewer babies in future to make up for that. But a lot of academics are pointing to what they call the lost generation in Europe. Those are basically women who were graduating from university around the time of the global financial crisis, particularly in southern Europe, in countries like Italy and Spain and Greece. That generation had a really hard time getting their foot onto the jobs market, getting their foot on the property ladder and basically settling down. A lot of them have put off starting a family because of economic uncertainty. And COVID-19 hitting now basically might put them in a position where either they have a child now or they might not be able to have a child at all. Avantika, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Working from home can be great, except when a delivery interrupts your important Zoom meeting. Or you get reminded to do your share of the housework. Jason, can you take the bins out, please? Or your teenager sets off the fire alarm when you're on a deadline. Hotels are trying to attract remote workers who are tired of working from home. Philip Coggan writes Bartleby, The Economist's column on work and management. The hotel chains think that people who want privacy, quiet and good facilities will be tempted to pay the money and rent the rooms that otherwise are not being occupied by tourists. So in a sense, it serves both constituencies. Yes, there's a vacancy among hotel rooms and there's a problem for those people who might be stuck in a very noisy house with children or builders or the neighbours builders and have a big project to do. The Hilton chain is offering a Workplaces by Hilton deal where they are in America, Canada and Britain. They're offering places for people to go. They get the Wi-Fi, they get coffee. The aim is to attract those people who can't work at home for the moment, can't get into the office, but are willing to pay more in order not to end up in a coffee shop. And so you yourself got out of the house and tried one of these out? Yes, so I trekked into central London to stay at a hotel in St. James's in the heart of the West End. I have to say, I didn't see any other (laughs) guests when I was going in, but for an hour or so, I sat in an extremely nice room. It was one of those suites. It cost, if you were to pay for it, which we didn't, £299 a day, around $400 or so. And if you wanted food, including breakfast, lunch, and an afternoon cocktail to help your project really go the swing, there'll be another £50. Obviously, I didn't have the after-dinner cocktail. And, you know, it was a lovely room. The staff were pleasant. Everybody wore a mask and kept their distance, as well as the space for the laptop. There was a shredder there and a big printer. So, you know, if you were an executive working on a report, everything there you wanted. Yeah, but 400 bucks a day is out of reach for pretty much everyone except those with really fancy corporate expense accounts. 
Yes, exactly. So business travel has been completely devastated by the pandemic. Very few people are traveling around the world. And also, of course, hotels have made very good money out of conferences, but all the conferences are online. So they're just trying to fill a small part of that shortfall by attracting, I think, the top end of office workers. Do you think this push by the hotel industry is really going to catch on? I think it's a very niche market. For a humble drone like me, home is ideal. I've got all the books here, the kettle and my favourite tea. You know, if I want to have a break, it's much nicer at home. But of course, there are lots of people who don't have quiet homes. You know, might be flat sharing with four or five other people and would be grateful for a break. The question then is, can people in that category actually afford a hotel room? Certainly not at the top end, I wouldn't have thought. And then there will always be people like me who can't avail themselves of those spaces. I have to be in a particular sound environment, which at this moment is the spare room closet. A true professional like you will make many sacrifices, Jason, and I really hope the claustrophobia doesn't kick in, but good luck to you. Philip, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. That link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.